John chapter 18. We'll start today in verse 12, and we'll be here for um, we'll be here for a couple of weeks. So the last time we were together, we studied verses 1 through 12, and that was when Jesus had gone into the garden and uh, he was arrested. So the rest of this chapter and end of chapter 19 will, for the most part, cover Jesus' trials, and then we'll get to his, uh, his, his crucifixion. Uh, however, there is one kind of a sub-story that goes on in these verses, and, and while John is, is talking about Jesus and he's, and he's, he's recounting the trials of Jesus, uh, both in front of the Jews and in front of the Romans, he's going to do something fairly unusual. And what he's going to do is he's going to weave in a, a second story or a second drama at the same time. And that drama, uh, of course, involves uh, Peter. Now, remember what we said a couple weeks ago is that John's goal of his gospel, if you go to chapter 20 or 21, he says, I'm writing these things so that you will what? You will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have life through His name. So the, John recounts certain things, and he's recounting them or telling them so that you'll believe Jesus is the Son of God. So his goal is always to glorify Jesus, right? That's, that's what he wants to do. What he's going to do here, and you may say, well, why is he telling us then about Peter? Well, what he's going to do is he's contrasting Jesus to Peter. Okay, so he, he throws Peter into the story, lets you see what happened to Peter, so that he can co- contrast how Jesus behaves and how Peter behaves. Now let's remember, Peter is no run-of-the-mill disciple. First of all, is he a true believer? Absolutely. He's not a false disciple. He's not somebody that's going to come and go. He's a real disciple. He's a true believer. And in fact, in terms of, of, of natural ability... Uh, natural personality, he was probably the greatest disciple. He was kind of the de facto leader, was he not? Everybody kind of looked to Peter to see what Peter would do. We can't question his bravery. Was he brave? I mean, think back to verses 1 through 12. He's in the garden. He's outgunned. He's outmanned. And who's the one disciple that steps up and says, let's fight this thing out? It was Peter. So, you know, it wasn't that he wasn't brave. Uh, so as men go, he was kind of the top of the line. But yet, the fact is, compared to Jesus, he's nothing, right? And that's what Paul, I mean, what uh, John wants us to uh, see, that uh, uh, he wants us to see this comparison. So John's goal, after reading this passage, is that we'll come out of this, even this, this, this terrible time in Jesus' life, that we'll come out of this with a better understanding of the beauty and the dignity and the glory of Jesus compared to the sinfulness of Peter. And that's what uh, John wants to do. Um, As we move through the story, we'll see Jesus' behavior contracted with that of the Jews or contrasted with that of the Jews. We'll see his behavior contrasted with that also of Pilate. So what we're going to see in this story uh, is the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. Um, let's not ever forget, Christianity is built on the fact that Christ is glorious and perfect in holiness and character, and we're not. <laughs> That's basically, Christianity stops right there. He's holy, and we're not. And everything kind of moves up from that point, and John is going to uh, contrast that again 
for us. So let's continue with our story today. So we start in verse 12, uh, where we left off a couple weeks ago. The Jews and the soldiers, they've come to the Garden of Gethsemane and they've arrested Jesus. In verse 12 it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. So we'll pick up from there, verse 13. So it says, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Cephas, who was high priest that year. Now, we have to stop right there because there's going to be a lot of questions throughout this story. First of all, who was this guy named Annas, and why would Jesus be taken to him instead of the high priest? Okay, so that's the first question. Who was this guy that he was so important that they would take Jesus to him as opposed to actually taking him uh, to the high priest who was the head of the, of the Sanhedrin. Now, there's a couple of other scriptures that give us some insight into this situation. In Luke 3, 2, uh, this is before Jesus was born. It said this, During the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. I, I take that back. This is before Jesus began his ministry, not before he was born. And then in Acts 4, 6, after Jesus has died, it says this, With Annas the high priest and Cephas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So this gets real confusing real quickly. So at first it says Cephas is the high priest and Annas is his father-in-law. And then Luke says that they both were the high priest. And then in Acts 4, 6, it says Annas was the high priest and the other people were in the high priestly family. So uh, what we can see is that during that time that both Annas and Cephas were both called the high priest. Now, can you have two high priests? Not according to Scripture, you can't. Um, so how did that situation come about? Uh, Annas, let's go back to Annas. Annas is also uh, called Ananias. He was, in fact, the high priest of the Jews from the year 6 to 15 A.D. So when Jesus was a, was a child and into his teenage years, Annas was actually the high priest. Um, now, according to the Old Testament, you were supposed to be a high priest for life. That was not supposed to change. But Annas was deposed by the Roman procurator uh, by the name of Gaius. And he was probably very powerful, and they wanted somebody else in there. They wanted to get him out and get somebody else and put them in control. So in 15 AD, he was deposed from being the, uh, the high priest. But because he was so powerful, he just found a way to keep control. In fact, of the next seven men who became high priest after him, five of them were his sons. One was his grandson, and the other was his son-in-law. Okay? So you figure... We got some kind of political stuff going on here, right? So he may not have been high priest, but guess who was in charge? He was still in charge. So even though he, they had ousted him, the Roman government had ousted him as high priest, the next seven of the next seven that were put in, five were his sons, one was his grandson, and the other was his son-in-law. So he was still a very, very powerful man. Now the fact is that in those times, the high priesthood had degenerated into a political position. It was something you got through politics, you got through bribery, it was corrupt. Um, and so Annas was able to get his people in there, right? So very, it wasn't being run according to the Bible. Everybody with me? It wasn't being done the right way. It had just completely degenerated from that. 
and it was just a political uh, position. We also, if you look outside the Bible, we also find some more information. Uh, the Talmud, does anybody, anybody know what the Talmud is? Somebody want to try? What's the Talmud? The Jewish book. It's a Jewish book. No, that's the Pentateuch. That's the Pentateuch. So, the regulation. So the 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 the, uh, the Jews had the Bible, right? The Old Testament. Okay, but the Jewish they're kind of like us. If one rule is good, two must be better, right? If a thousand rules are good, ten thousand must be better. So they had the Bible. They couldn't add to the Bible, right? So what did they do? They made up their own rules. They had all these rules and traditions and regulations and laws, and they wrote their own book called the Talmud. So the Talmud is all of this oral tradition that got carried down throughout the years. For example, we'll see uh, next week. If you heard a talk about that a Jew could not go into a Gentile's house or they would be unclean, right? Is that in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that says if a Jew went into a, a Gentile's house, they would be unclean. That was a rule that the Jews made up and put it in the Talmud. Okay? So, it's kind of like our traditions, right? I mean, it is the fact that you have to have church on Sunday, is that in the Bible? No. It's our tradition. It's what we do. Right? You want to have church on Tuesday morning. That's your business. The Bible doesn't say you have to have church on Sunday. Um, that's a tradition. But what they did is they took their traditions and they made rules and laws out of them. And that's what the Talmud was. Now, in the Talmud is a lot of quotes, and one of the quotes in the Talmud is this, Woe to the house of Annas, woe to their serpent's hiss. They are high priests, their sons are keepers of the treasury, their sons-in-law guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves. Now, if you go back and read all this, evidently Annas and his family, all these sons and grandsons and sons-in-laws, they were in charge of the temple, and specifically, they were in charge of the temple concessions. Okay, This is where they got their, their money. Now, the temple concessions were really two things. And we studied this uh, earlier in John. Remember, when people came to the temple, one of the things you had to do every year as a Jew is you had to pay the temple tax. Everybody remember that? Okay, But the problem was you couldn't pay with Jewish money. Why was that? I'm sorry, you couldn't pay with Roman money. Why was that? That's right. The emperor's image was on the Roman money. So you could, the Jews wouldn't take that. So what you had to do is you had to convert the Roman money or exchange Roman money for Jewish money and then pay your tax with the Jewish money. Now, so there would, there would be people in the temple. I was in the airport this week and there's a, a, an exchange place where if you flew in the United States and you want to change... Uh, you know, foreign money for American money, you exchange it, and they, they charge you a fee for that. They did the exact same thing back then. So they had all these people. You would go up and have some Roman money here. I want to exchange, you know, $100 of Roman money for $100 of Jewish money. Well, they would do that, but they would take out, they'd give you $98 back. They'd take $2 or $5, whatever the fee was. So Annas's family was in charge of all of this. So they got the fees for exchanging uh, the money. The second thing that they owned, when the people came to the temple to make sacrifices, 
you remember the Old Testament law required that if you sacrificed a lamb or something like that, it had to be without spot or blemish. It had to be perfect, right? So what happened is these, these poor old farmers, you know, they had one little lamb, and they'd bring that little lamb to the temple to sacrifice it, and they had to pass inspection. Well, guess who the inspectors worked for? They worked for Annas. And they'd look at your little lamb and say, ah, he's got a little problem right here. <laughs> There's a little spot. I don't see it. Well, yeah, there it is. You don't pass. And so what would you have to do? You'd have to buy one of their lambs that was approved by the temple police or whatever. And so, and of course, that lamb would cost you what? Be like buying a Coke at Disney World, right? Instead of a buck, it's nine dollars. It's exactly what they would do. And so, the fact is, they would they were making money hand over fist off the Jewish people. And that's why, if you go back to that, it says, "Woe to the house of Annas." Okay, the the Jews themselves didn't like them uh, very much. Now. If knowing that about Annas, here's the question. If Annas was in charge of all that stuff in the temple, would he have any special reason to hate Jesus? What was it? Jealousy. Huh? Jealousy. What did Jesus do? He turned over the money. Remember this? Mark 21, 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So he walked in there and said, this is not right. Right? I mean, he just turns it over. He was a, yeah, I mean, he was absolutely a threat. I mean, if, you're, if that's your main money source, you don't want some guy coming over and telling the people, y'all shouldn't put up with this, right? So he did not, he had a special reason uh, to, uh, to hate Jesus. Now, in verse 13, we, enter, we are introduced to a guy by the name of Cephas. And so let's read that again, verse 13, or I'll start with verse 3. It says, First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Cephas, who was high priest that year. And then it explains who Cephas was. This was the Cephas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, Cephas is the actual high priest. Okay, He's uh, Annas' son-in-law. It didn't say that? Yeah, it was his son-in-law. So he's the actual sitting high priest. and In actuality, he just does whatever Annas tells him to do. But the fact is, he's the sitting high priest. Now, he has been involved in plotting Jesus' death for quite a while. He was a, he was a typical politician. Uh, he wasn't in that office out of, out of, uh, to give glory to God or anything like that. It was strictly a political uh, position. Now, he's threatened by the popularity of Jesus. And we saw this back in uh, chapter 11. Remember, this is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, let's read verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 40. It wouldn't be 47 to 43. It'd be, 43, it'd be 47 to 53. It says this, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. Remember, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. What are they concerned about? Themselves. He just raised a guy from the dead. And they're like, man, we can't let this stuff go on. I mean, how, how ridiculous is that? Right? Um, but one of them, Cephas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people 
and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Cephas, had from the, from the time he raised Lazarus, he's been plotting, waiting for an opportunity, planning to put Jesus to death. So, so again, both Annas and Cephas have reasons to kill Jesus. They're just waiting for the right opportunity, and now uh, that opportunity has uh, presented itself. Now, in this, at this point in the story, it's what we talked about earlier, John does something unusual. Instead of just continuing on and telling us what happened, he switches over and he starts talking about Peter. So let's look at verse 15. It says this, So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, one question we always have here, well, who is this other disciple? He's, uh, this other disciple is not named. Um, we don't know who it is. Some people think it's John himself uh, because he usually doesn't name himself. You know, when John talks about himself in the gospel, he just he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He, he hardly ever says his own name. But it seemed, remember, John was very, very young, right? Um, and in fact, John was the youngest. It would be, it seems unlikely that he would know the high priest to the point that everybody knew him. Even the servant girl at the door would know him and let him in. Um, others think that this could be Nicodemus or maybe Joseph of Arimathea. The fact is we just don't know who this other disciple is. Uh, there's nothing that gives us any, um, any facts about that. Whatever the case is, what happens when they get there, the other, disciples enter, the other disciples enters with Jesus into the courtyard. Peter remains outside. Now, houses back then would always be built for the courtyard, something... You know, that, obviously, that's a very uh, weird scale. The fact is, you would always enter into a courtyard, and then inside the courtyard, you would have the, the actual house itself. So what happens is, G, uh, Paul, Peter actually stays outside of the courtyard. So he's actually outside the wall. Uh, but the other disciple enters in. And so let's look at verse 16. It says, But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, let's think about Peter for a minute. What do you think Peter was planning? What do you think he was... What's in Peter's mind? He's, let's go back. He's in the garden, right? He takes out his sword and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. So is he brave? Yeah. Remember a few... Uh, 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 not too long ago, Jesus had been saying, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be... And he said, man, I'll go with you, what? To the death, right? So I, what do you think was in Peter's mind? Rescue Jesus. Think he's maybe, okay, maybe I'm going to rescue him. I'm looking for an opportunity. What else do you think? Just get it off. Okay. He might have been thinking this is the day that he's been talking about. Okay. Do you think he was ready to die in his mind? Okay, I think two things. Probably he was either going to affect a rescue. He's thinking, I'm going to follow him. Right now, by the way, you don't see you don't see any of the other disciples. They're all gone, right? Except for one other. At least Peter's there. He's following. Maybe he's thinking about a rescue. Maybe he's thinking, look, if if he's going to die, I'm going to die with him because he has already said that. That's all. 
But I'm pretty sure was Peter was kind of a grandiose sort of guy, right? Right? So I'm sure his plans were fairly grandiose, whatever they were. Now, his plan may have been grandiose, but now won't you watch what happens. He couldn't even get by the little girl at the gate. And, and look at verse 17. So the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his, this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, there's a real lesson here. Was Peter a brave guy? Yeah. Was Peter, do you think Peter was ready to die? See, I think all of those things, but what happens in one statement, gone are all the heroic promises, gone are, are, is the courage that was in his heart, gone was all the self-confidence, and what's left is a coward. Now, what happened to Peter? Okay, and I think what happened, I think what, what happened here is it is something caught him that he wasn't expecting. Okay, this is what I mean by this. See, I think in Peter's mind, he's he's think about this for just a second. In Peter's mind, he's following behind, right? In fact, it says he followed at his distance. And in his mind, he's thinking, okay, I got my sword with me. This is what I'm I'm gonna hide outside the door. And it when they bring him out, I'm gonna rest. Or he's thinking, okay, you know, if if they ask if the if the guards ask me this, this is what I'm gonna say. If the Jewish uh, priest asked me this. D don't we all do this, by the way? Don't we plan when you're going into a situation? If this happens, this is what I'm going to do. You see, I think he had planned for everything except that little girl. I don't think he ever thought in his mind, now if the little servant girl <laughs> asks me this, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. I don't think he ever thought about, about that. See, I think he, he had thought about what, what if the soldiers confront me? What if the Pharisees confront me, but he never gave that servant girl a second thought. And see, that's exactly how Satan works. He doesn't, he's very subtle. He, he doesn't come at you in the way you expect. He comes at you in the way you don't expect. And that's exactly what he did to Peter. He didn't come at Peter with soldiers. He didn't come at Peter with the, with the high priest. No, he came at, at, at Peter with people just like him, even less than him. You see, when we know something, a trial or a test is coming, we choose our weapons and plan our strategy, don't we? But the fact is, it's, the, it's not those things you have to watch out for. It's the little sudden things, the things you don't expect that catch you. They're the ones that'll flatten you. They're the ones that'll show you who you really are. You know, if you, if you get a chance to think it all out and plan and plan and plan, and when it happens, you're ready. But it's, the, it's when you walk around the corner at the grocery store and there's that person and you had no clue they were going to be there. And you don't, it's then that finds out, is the word really in your heart? Is it already there? Wait, does that make sense? Yes. See, see, Peter, I don't think he ever thought about that. We can have all the best intentions in the world, but if you're not trusting in God at every moment, you'll stumble on little things that you never see coming. You know, like Peter... We have a tendency to get all self-confident, like we've got it all figured out, that we can handle any situation. But the fact is, as soon as you quit trusting in Him and trusting your own flesh, you will fall. And it won't be the big things that get you. It'll be the little subtle things that, that grab you. So Peter has, now, he has completely, this little girl says, you're one of his servants. All he had to do was say, yes, I am, and I'm proud of it. And he, he just completely fell apart and he said no. Now, 
Look at verse 18. It says, Now the servants and the officers have made, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, I want you to put, he's standing at the fire. What do you think's in his mind right now? Looking at this, that he'd be like not wanting to let them know he was going to be there for Jesus. So you're not going to give away the information that you're, you're looking for an opportunity to spring them or to do, intercede in some other way. Okay. All right. I think he's wondering what's going on inside. Okay. He's wondering what's going on right now. Back now. I want you to back up just a minute. He's just denied. Yeah the Lord and he's standing at that fire what's in his mind he's thinking well Jesus told me I was going to deny him three times before the morning well that was number one. Oh my god I just I just did number one to this, okay. this little girl okay that's what I think. I, I just think and I, I've by the way I've been there have you have you been there when you you just failed him in some way or another anybody What's in your What's in your mind and heart when that happens? Complete, exactly. You are, you. Everything else fades away, and you are overcome with shame and guilt and regret. If he had any other plan in his mind, it is gone. I'm telling you. It's, how can you say I'm gonna think about this how in the world could you say I'm going to rescue him when you just denied him to a little girl it, that's over we've all been there we failed him and I'm telling you in that moment that's all you can think about how did what kind of person am I after all he's done for me I just let him I mean it, it, it totally it just totally takes you over in that and I guarantee you that's where he was in fact we'll see this in a minute these are the people, by the way, that just came to the garden that he was ready to fight. Now he's standing around a fire warming himself with them. He's in a, by the way, now he's in a bad situation, right? He's just denied Christ. He's separated from all his, the people that can back him up, all the other disciples, and he's surrounded by people, he's basically surrounded by the world. He's surrounded by his enemies. He's warming himself by the fire with people that they're, they're not going to hold him accountable. Right? I mean, he's in a, by the way, he's in a bad place. See, the first denial, that was the one that got him. The rest of these, they're just, the rest, the, the other two are going to happen. Because he's got nothing holding him up now. Does that make sense? I mean, he's got nothing helping him now. He, he, now he's done, he, he went over the edge. Now he would deny him 50 times. Now. Because he's got nothing holding him up. We'll see this in a minute. Now, at this point, John switches back to Jesus. Jesus is in the house. He's being questioned by Anna, so John turns the story back to him. Now, I want you to see, and we're going to see this week and next week, just how ugly and sordid uh, this whole affair was. And this was really a, an interesting study for me. We're all familiar with the American justice system, right? Um, in, in the American justice system, an accused person is arrested. They're arraigned to make sure there's enough evidence to, to hold them. And then they're formally tried, right? And, and they're presumed innocent. And it's the, it's the, uh, the, the, the uh, responsibilities on the government to prove 
beyond a shadow of a doubt, that person that's been arrested doesn't have to prove anything, do they? Not to show anything. It's just the government's job to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that person is guilty. And if they're convicted, they have a right to what? To an appeal. To make sure everything was done in order and presented in order. And that can take from several weeks uh, to several years. So what would we think in America if a person was arrested, arraigned, tried and executed in 12 hours? What would we think about that? We would think it was some, listen, it, regardless of who that person was, even if that person was caught, you know, doing something terrible, we all know that's not right. We, even if that person is just flat out guilty, we know you still have to go through the system because this is how, that, that's what makes it fair for everybody. But the fact is, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Starting around midnight that night to around noon the next day, he was arrested, arraigned, tried, condemned, and executed in 12 hours. <clears throat> 12 hours. And they went through all of this. Now you may think, well, that, listen, that was then. This is now. We've come a long way since then. Something like that would ne never happen in America. But the fact is, I don't know if you know it or not, but our system of justice is built off of the Jewish system of justice. In fact, they had the exact same rules that we have in place today. They had those same rules in place back then. We took a lot of their stuff to build our criminal justice system. So the fact is, it shouldn't happen in America, but you know what? It shouldn't have happened then either. This wasn't some backwater country where people just did anything they wanted to do. This was a civilized society that had rules and, and laws. So again... One of the things that we'll see the rest of this uh, today and next week is that the Jewish system of justice was very similar to ours. And um, In fact, listen to how uh, a guy by the name of Max Radin, he was the author of a book called The Trial of Jesus of Nazareth. He describes this is a, a common trial in Judea. He says this, We are, most of us, familiar with the procedure of criminal investigations. The accused person is arrested, arraigned before a committing magistrate, specifically accused and formally, a tri uh, formally tried. He may, and he generally does, appeal to a higher court if he's convicted. All these things take time, and there's almost necessarily an interval of weeks and months between the later stages of the procedure. But above all, the procedure is strictly regulated by law, and any serious deviation is not merely an irregularity, but will probably prevent punishment from being inflicted. That, that is actually how it was supposed to take place according to Jewish law. Okay? Um, but in this particular play, case, it's already been decided that Jesus is going to die. So what you're going to find is that the Jews basically threw the rule of law out the window and just did whatever they wanted uh, to do. And so one of the things that I want to do today, in fact, if you actually go read some Jewish writings today, they'll tell you that the, the trial of Jesus was legal, but it was completely illegal even according to Jewish law. And so as we go through this study today and next week, I want to show you several ways in which the Jewish leaders broke their own laws in order to convict Jesus and execute the Savior of the world. Now here's the first one. Jesus, remember, when is this happening? Yeah, midnight, early morning. Uh, he, he's being examined by Annas in a, this is like his arraignment, right? According to the Talmud, courts of any type 
were forbidden from convening between the time of the evening and the morning sacrifice. So basically from dusk till dawn, you could not have any kind of court proceeding. That was specifically forbidden in the Talmud. In the book, Jesus Before the Sanhedrin, M.M. Lehman states that no session, including a preliminary examination of the court, could take place before the offering of the morning sacrifice. So having a court at night was patently illegal according to Jewish law. You could not do it. Okay, And there were, there were reasons for that. We'll see a little bit later. Number two, the reason it was illegal, the whole thing with Judas accepting a bribe, you couldn't do that. That made the whole, the whole thing should have been thrown out immediately. Um, in Samuel Mendelssohn, who wrote a book called The Criminal Jurisprudence of the Ancient Hebrews, said this, The testimony of an accomplice is not permissible by rabbinic law, and no man's life, nor his liberty, nor his reputation can be endangered by the malice of one who has confessed himself a criminal. Both Judas and the judges committed a criminal act by accepting a bribe, didn't they? That's not, it wasn't legal then, wasn't legal today. That one thing alone should have caused that whole thing to be thrown out. In today's court, we just say, well, that's not, the whole thing's thrown out because the judges gave the bribe and, and Judas accepted it. Another reason it was legal, number three, Jesus was compelled to testify against himself. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Remember, just like today, the burden of proof is on the court, right? To prove they just we they had a we they didn't have a fifth amendment. Everybody seen people get up in front and say, "I plead the fifth means I, I'm not going to incriminate myself." They had the exact same thing. It wasn't called the fifth amendment, but no nobody was could incriminate themselves, and you'll see that here in just a, a little bit. The burden of proof was on the court. The evidence against the accused had to come from witnesses, not from the accused themselves. Listen, that's why Jesus answered. Look at verse 20 through 21. Jesus answered him, talking to Annas, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've not said anything in secret. Why are you asking me? Ask those who have heard what I said. They know what I said. See, he's not being sarcastic. What he's saying is, look, guys, you need to follow the law. Why are you asking me? I'm the accused. Go find witnesses. That's exactly why Jesus said what he said. Do it. If you're going to try me, do it the right way. Go find witnesses. You've got no business asking me what I said. So Jesus is just saying, this is what the law says. You need to follow it. Number four, it was illegal, just like it is today. Could we, could we just go into a courtroom and, um, and just punch the guy out? No. No, that's, that's illegal. Well, it was illegal then. You couldn't strike the accused, but that's exactly what they did. Look at verse 22 to 23. When he said those things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus, watch what Jesus says again. If I said something wrong, what's he saying? Where's your witness? Find the witnesses. Where's your witnesses? But if I said what is right, why, why are you hitting me? You know, so again, he's 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 referring back to this. Where are your witnesses? You you got no business asking me these these questions. So at this point, in John's account, the illegal arraignment is over, and it was illegal. Uh, look at verse twenty-four. Then Annas sent him bound to Caphas, the high priest. Now we'll come back 
to Jesus a little later, but at this point in the story, John does what? He switches back to Peter. You see how he's kind of got these two stories going at the same time. Verse 25 says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Now remember, in the garden, he's standing with Jesus and he's defending him with the sword. Now he's standing by a fire with the servants and the officers, the enemies of Jesus. Now again, the peer pressure at this point must have been enormous, right? You've been separated, in the, at least in the garden, you're standing with Jesus and the other disciples and you're saying, let's fight this out, right? But now you've been completely separated. You're standing around a fire with the enemies that you were just with, right? You're just standing there. And by the way, a few minutes ago, you just failed him. So you're filled with shame. You're filled with regret. You're filled with guilt. All those things are just washing over you. He's on enemy ground. Uh, standing among the enemy. He's alone, no other disciples. He's weakened by his previous failure. His self-confidence is low and his self-doubt is high. And again, we've all been there at one time or another and that is not a good situation. And predictably, at this point it's predictable, he fails again. Look at verse 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself and so they said to him, Hey, you're, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, hey, didn't I see you? Now remember, this guy was in the garden, right? These same guys. He said, hey, I was in the garden. Didn't I see you with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Okay? Now, this is the last that we'll hear of uh, of Peter in this chapter. Um, John doesn't say anything more. Uh, and remember what we said earlier, that he's showing us Peter in order to do what? To exalt Jesus. But Matthew tells us this in Matthew 26, 75, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Okay? Um, now, Listen, before we move on, I want to point out a couple of things about Peter and his denial. First of all, remember Jesus had predicted that would happen. Matthew 26, 33 to 34, Peter said, Though everybody else fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm telling you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So, so he had already, Jesus knew exactly that it was going uh, to happen and he predicted it. Now, this is a terrible personal failure for a very proud and a very brave man. And a failure that's magnified, not only, now think about this, did he fail himself? He failed himself. Did he fail a friend? He did. By the way, those are two terrible things. But do you also understand that he knew Jesus was the Messiah? So he, not only did he fail himself, he failed a close friend. He failed God. You think I, you, I think we'd go out and weep bitterly, I would hope, if that, if that happened to us. So, I mean, think about this as on this guy. But what we need to see and understand about this story is that not only did Jesus let it happen, He wanted it to happen. Okay? It was His will to let that happen. Did He not? In fact, in the garden, you know, in the garden He had protected His disciples. And there's times He'll protect us. But there are also times He will let us fall flat on our face. Okay? That's what he did with Peter because he had a reason. Look at, see, there's no question that Peter loved Jesus with all his heart. Nobody would doubt that. 
but Peter just had this kind of overwhelming self-confidence that he could do anything. Did he not? Who steps out of the boat and walks on the water? Peter, Peter right? Who, who just does those kind of things? Who's always running his mouth off? Who's got the answer to every question? It's Peter. He just had this self-esteem, this self-confidence that drew other people to him, by the way. But Jesus, to be honest with you, Jesus needed to bring him down a notch. God needed to bring him down a notch so that his self-confidence wasn't based on him, but it was based on who he was in Christ. Right? And, 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 and absolutely, God will allow those things to happen. Look at what Jesus said. Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, what does he say? Strengthen your brothers. In other words, I'm going to let you go through this and it's going to bring you down a notch. But when you come back to me, when you turn again, you're going to be a different person. You're, you're, you're going to be able to strengthen your brothers not because of who you are, but because what I've done in you. You're going to be, a, you're going to be different. I'm going to let you go through this sickness. I'm going to go, let you go through this loss so that when you come out the other side, you're going to have a new strength inside of you and you're going to be able to take that strength and minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, not only did Jesus know it was going to happen, he let it happen and he wanted it to happen because he wanted to do something inside Peter. Peter would fail the test, but his faith would not fail. And in the end, his failure would make him stronger. And because he'd be stronger, he can now minister to others who also fail. So Peter's story is at an end. So at this point, John turns back to Jesus. Now, when we last saw Jesus in verse 24... He was being moved from Annas' house to Cephas' house. Look at verse 24. Annas sent him bound to Cephas, the high priest. But now, the fact is, John picks the story back up in verse 28. Um, they led Jesus from the... So now, let me go back again. So in verse 24, they move him from Annas' house to Cephas' house. Everybody with me? And in verse 28, John says, they led him from Cephas to Pilate. Now that leaves out... Oh, <laughs> That's a whole lot of questions there, right? John just says, hey. But again, remember, John was more interested in telling us other things. Now, fortunately, there are, there are Gospels that give us other information. For example, while Jesus was at Annas' house, did anything else happen? What happened while he was at Cephas' house? Okay? Uh, and again, we have other Gospels that tell us. Uh, for example, let's look at Mark. Mark 14, and they led Jesus to the high priest, this is Annas, okay, this is the first one he went to, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, he was sitting with the guards and warming himself, so we, everybody understand this is at Annas' house, while he's at Annas' house, guess who shows up, all the other high priests, Cephas, and all, basically the whole Sanhedrin comes over to Annas' house. Everybody with me? Because this is going to be important, okay? Now, this is illegal. It is illegal for the Sanhedrin to meet before sunrise. Look at, uh, Mendelssohn said this, criminal cases can be acted upon by the various courts during the daytime only, and by the lesser Sanhedrins from the close of morning sacrifice till noon, and by the greater Sanhedrin till evening. So you had all these little lesser courts, they could meet from dawn, uh, from daylight till noon. Only the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court, could meet from uh, dawn till dusk. 
but nobody could meet at night. That was patently, uh, patently illegal. Look at the Jewish Mishnah. Let a capital offense be tried during the day, but be suspended at night. You see, even to the Jews, convicting someone of a crime punishable by death was a very serious business. Therefore, Jewish law required anybody, any of those judges to be at their best mental state, which you're not at your best mental state at 3 in the morning, are you? If you're going to be trying somebody and deciding if you're going to die, the Jews said, okay, you've got to do this in the daylight. You can't do it at night. You've got to do it in the day when you're at your best mental state. You've got to do it during the day when, when, when there's accountability. So they were, you could not meet at night, but that's exactly what they, what they did. Mark went on to tell us more about what happened during that illegal meeting. It says, now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, Hey, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So they went out. Remember, they had to find what? Witnesses. So they went out and found some. They couldn't get any of them to agree on what he had said or what he had um, uh, done. Mark 14, 60 to 61 says this, And the high priest stood up, and remember, they're still at Annas' house now, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Remember, they got no business questioning him, right? He's the accused. It's their responsibility to find witnesses. Again, it's very similar to the, our Fifth Amendment Nobody could be uh, compelled to incriminate themselves, but that's exactly what they're asking Jesus to do. Let's read on in Mark. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, For what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now, I want you to, this, by the way, this is still at Annas' house. It's in the night. It's illegal. They're questioning Jesus. You could never convict a man based on what he said. Now, I want you to look at that. Tell me, what have they, what have they decided he's guilty of? Blasphemy. blasphemy. Now, that's very important. He's guilty of blasphemy. By the way, and we'll see this next week, it was illegal according to Scripture for the high priest to rent his clothes. The Bible says you should never do that. Never as a high priest, you never tear your clothes. What did he do? He tore his clothes. By the way, what was he trying to do by doing that? Incite emotion. Exactly. He was trying to get them stirred up. right? And he did that. By the way, if you go back, and we'll see this next week, there was a rule that when you voted on a death penalty case in the Sanhedrin, you always started with the lowest member first and you went to the highest. What do you think was the reason behind that? Why would you start with the lowest member? It, the least influence. That's exactly right. See, if you're a low member, you've just been on the court two months, and the high priest says guilty, it's going to be a little bit harder for you to say not guilty, but if you go first, you can. There's no influence, right? But look what happened. Who said he was guilty? The high priest. 
That was illegal. Couldn't do that according to their own rules. So everything they're doing, just continually breaking the law, breaking their own rules that they have, have set. And it's just, it's really interesting as you go through this. So next week, we'll kind of pick up some of that, the trial of Jesus, and we'll look at, at, uh, at what happens next. Just to give you a brief preview, remember, there, it's, it's real early in the morning. It's probably 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, they, they're at Annas' house. Then they're going to move him over to Cephas' house. Right, and then they're going to meet again when it gets dawn. They're going to meet again and pronounce him guilty. Why would they wait till dawn and meet again? It makes, that made it legal. That's exactly right. They knew they had to wait till dawn. See, they knew what they had done was illegal, so they wait till daylight. They meet again, and they say he's guilty, and then they take him over to Pilate. So we'll we'll continue next week uh, with the trial of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for. Um, <clears throat>